on your radar if you've been a part of City Life. How many of y'all were a part of City Life Newport News and planted with us? Come on. Y'all give it up for them. Or not. Denise, you're, I got you. I got you. I, can't, I just can't clap into the mic. But, uh, but if you've been a part of the church for any time, you know the first weekend in Saturday, we actually, the first weekend in January, we actually launched last year on January 30th, so we weren't here the first weekend in January. So this is new to us. The first weekend in January, we have what we call a sharing service. And it's just that, a sharing service. We don't have a clever name, no clever title. We get together, we worship, just like we just did, and then we share. Everybody takes two to five minutes just to share what God has been doing in their life. Because, again, as we shared in worship, you might have had a, a mountaintop year. You might have had a valley year. But we know that just like Psalm 23, God shows up in both places. His rod and his staff, they show up in the valley. And it's always powerful. I mean, it's more powerful than me standing up here and talking for 30 minutes. Is hearing what God has done in your lives this year. So it's going to be an awesome service. So I just want to put that on your radar. Uh, maybe you didn't know it was coming. So next week you might even have something that's been cooking and marinating all week that you want to share. So that's what's coming up is the sharing service. What we're coming out of is, as Nate mentioned, a great service we had last week with Faith Lutheran. But then the week before that, two weeks ago, was our last service before Christmas. So we talked about the, the wise men, the, the three magi. We talked about, um, you know, how it was a long journey. It started on Christmas and it went for two years. So two weeks later, I don't feel bad talking about it. I could talk about them for the next couple of years and we'd still be tracking with them as they journeyed. But we talked about how their knowledge sparked action. How there were other knowledgeable people in that story, these scribes that Herod called upon, but their knowledge didn't spark action. They didn't run to worship the Savior that they even knew the prophecies about. And we talked about two actions that made the wise men wise. And the first was their giving, or what we talk about here, the discipline or pathway of generosity. You know that uh, two weeks ago, we had an offering in service, a one-time offering. We're building a school in Haiti in February. It's an awesome opportunity. Marvin Thomas from the Newport News campus, he's going to be going down there with a crew of probably about a half dozen people. And they're going to build a school for these children that don't have one. Or they have one, but it's got holes in the walls, holes in the roof, no chairs and tables. And they're going to be able to provide that for them. So we had a one-time offering. We were, our goal was 11, and I think we hit right around 9. So if you stroked a check two weeks ago, I'm not telling you to break the bank, but if you were on the fence or you forgot, you can still give to that. You can grab an envelope at the info table, just mark it Haiti School, or you can go online to citylifeva.com slash give, and you can give towards Haiti, because we want to hit that $11,000 mark, and we want to build that school, amen? But the second thing that made the wise men truly wise was, their, again, their knowledge sparked a pursuit. And I know so often when we think of stewardship, we think of stewarding other people's things or being good stewards of our money or being good stewards in our home. But the, the wise men were stewarding prophecies, possibly by Daniel, by any of the, the ten tribes that were in exile. He, he had heard or they had heard these prophecies about the coming of Jesus, and that's what sparked their movement. God's prophetic word, it directed their steps. His words through his prophets, they sparked action. And because of this, the wise men stepped in their purpose. And we talked about last week, they went on a journey that many historians believe or theologians believe was about 1,000 miles one way at a time when most people didn't go more than 30 miles from their home because, one, it was dangerous, two, it was expensive, and three, it was just a headache in those times to travel that far. And then we also see that their gifts, especially this gift of gold for a poor couple like Mary and Joseph, it probably enabled them to be saved from Herod to save Jesus' life as they fled to Exodus. So the, the wise men's stewardship went down in history because they let the prophetic scriptures inform their steps. 
You know, the one letter of prophecy that we're handed in the New Testament as the New Testament church is Revelation. And if you're reading from cover to cover for the Bible, how many of you guys read the Bible from cover to cover this year? Yeah, Mike Master, I'll follow you on version. If you're on version, holler at me. I'll track your progress. But read it from cover to cover. How many of you guys read it chronologically? Anybody do that? There's all kinds of ways you can read through the Bible. But like I said last week, this is about 1,000 pages. I think this one's 1,020-something. My other one's 1,030-something. But the wise men went on a journey of about 1,000 miles. Come on, go on that journey next year. If you've never read the Bible from cover to cover, you've never dove into the truth of this word, then I just encourage you again, next year, work your way through it. And you don't have to finish it next year. But come on, begin that journey. It's a powerful one. But again, the, the one letter we're given as the New Testament church is Revelation that speaks prophetically to the apocalypse, the second coming of Christ. And it's got so many layers of symbolism. It's got many layers and, and many visions. And it's so easy as you're reading, especially to, you're at the end of the year, right? You might be behind. So you're kind of like skimming. You're, you're reading through Revelation just trying to get through it. But we shouldn't do that. One, because it's God's word. Come on, every word of scripture is worth careful consideration and careful reading. But two, Revelation promises blessing for its study. In Revelation 1-3, it says, blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. And there's a similar blessing in Revelation 22, verse 7. And we don't have time in one night to go through the entire book of Revelation. I follow one church that I podcast. The pastor there spent over 40 weeks in Revelation. We got about 40 minutes. So we're not going to go all the way through every detail. But I want to I hit on the heart of the book. I don't want us to miss the heart of the book. And that's that Jesus wins and that Jesus is coming back. As you know, outside of the Gospels and outside of Jesus' incarnation and his dying on the cross and his rising from the grave, the fact that Jesus is coming back, it should affect our day-to-day -day life as much as anything else. The question is, does it? Does it affect our day-to-day -day life? But you know, a question that I believe every human grapples with, regardless of their religious affiliation or what they believe, is what does the future hold for me? What does the future hold for me? And it's why when we turn to Revelation, our interest can be sparked. But like the rest of the Bible, if we turn to the book of Revelation, focused on ourselves and not on God and on Jesus Christ, we'll ultimately miss the point of the book entirely. Because prophecy, it's not here so we can know every detail of the future before we step into it. The central focus of Revelation isn't the mark of the beast or the seven-headed dragon, as cool as all these things are. And those are all worth careful study. But sometimes we can get so caught up in the obscure that we miss the obvious. You know, it, it's, we see it again right in the passage in Luke that we studied last week. These Pharisees, these scribes, they knew the Old Testament prophecies, and yet right before them would stand the Messiah, and they'd miss him, standing right before them. Jesus would say to them in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. The scriptures, Jesus says, they point to me, and Revelation is no different. In Revelation 19.10, it says, the spirit of Jesus is the testimony of prophecy. Prophecy is about Jesus Christ. You know, you look at the first five words of the book of Revelation, and it says this. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's what it's all about. You know, the word revelation, it means to unveil, to pull the veil back so you can see something that you couldn't see before. And the point is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. But what's, what's the veil being removed? What's the veil that's being pulled back? In Revelation, it's pulling back the veil of the flesh. 
Because what do you think of when I, when I talk about Jesus? What do you picture in your head when I say Jesus Christ? Might be the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Western culture version of Jesus. It might be the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It might be eight-pound, six-ounce Jesus from the nativity scenes we just set up. It might be Jesus on the cross. It might be Jesus walking on water. But often when we think of Jesus, we think of him in the flesh. Christmas to Easter. Jesus at the nativity to Jesus at the cross. And that's fitting because the, the work he did in the flesh is the source of our faith. It's the source of our hope. But when we limit his memory to just when he was in his flesh, that's 33 years out of an eternity. He willingly limited himself, but we can't keep him there. You know, there's more for us in the Bible than just who Jesus was and what he did the first time. It's like Transformers. I saw a preview for like Transformers 14, whatever number they're on now. They were making those when I was like a freshman in college. But it's like Transformers. I don't even, sorry, rabbit trail. There's more than meets the eye. The Bible talks not just about who Jesus was and what he did. It, it speaks to who he is and what he's going to do. And the book of Revelation in the New Testament, it presents Jesus as he is today. It speaks of his lordship more than any other book in the New Testament explicitly and frequently. He's no longer just the suffering servant or the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's enthroned in heaven with all glory and praises and majesty due to him, never to be reviled or rebuked. You know, this unveiling is written to make things clearer for the church. It's the gift that the Bible gives us. But again, sometimes we can get so busy tackling the obscure that we miss the obvious. And I don't want to miss that tonight, that Christ is coming again. And, you know, when we think of Revelation, the thought often goes to the to debates on the, the, the fine points of the end times. And sitting here, standing here, whatever, singing here, preaching here on New Year's Eve, just hours from New Year's Eve. I think of New Year's Eve some 17 years ago. Maybe some of you were there, but... This following video is what a lot of people thought uh, might have happened. How many of you guys remember that commercial? I think I was in high school. No? You're young for that? Anyways. <laughs> That's what a lot of people thought was going to happen. It was, was quote-unquote, Y2K. The thought that the world would begin to crumble July 1st of the year 2000. Uh, one in ten people in the U.S. believed that there was going to be another depression, that financial markets would collapse, that the national infrastructure would be crippled, and that martial law would be declared in some areas. One in ten people in the United States thought that this was going to happen. So the, if Doomsday Preppers, how many of you guys enjoy that show? Right? If that was around in 1999, that would have had just marathons all day because material was abounding left and right. I mean, Y2K was so feared that, that Clinton in, in did, he did the Y2K Act in 1999 to limit the government's liability. Like, this was a big deal. This wasn't just a couple people here and there thinking, huh, something might happen. It was a huge deal. 
Websites were dedicated to the end of the world. Tabloids got in on the act. Gun sales spiked. Uh, there was a new interest in bunkers, stocking your house to the brim with non-perishables. I had a buddy in high school we used to go after school to lift in his basement. His name was Steve Davies, and his parents began to stockpile things. And as we'd get up from the bench or get up from working out, we just, things just kept creeping in closer on us. So many two-liter bottles of water. Just so many boxes and cans of non-perishables. And then finally, of course, the year 2000 hit, nothing happened. And then his parents are like, hey, could you take some of that home with you, right? Like, we're, we're staying hydrated while we're working out, just chugging two liters of water and eating these food for hashtag gains, right? Just doing all this in this basement. Anybody else know anybody else who did something similar, right? Just stockpiled like crazy for Y2K. You know, Christian bookstores, they didn't stockpile non-perishables and, and bottles of water, but there was a stockpile of bestsellers that were Y2K related. It was a majority of those books that year that were Y2K related that were bestsellers, that were filled with speculation about the end times. And these, also, these books also filled homes. I had a buddy uh, after I graduated college, right, well after 2000, that still had a shelf full of these books that, of course, he never touched because it didn't happen, <laughs> But prophetic speculation, it's hardly a, a new phenomenon. The church doesn't need computers and, and glitches to get on, on predicting the apocalypse. There's hardly been a time in history that wasn't having some end-time prognosticators present. The Reformation's leader, Luther, he apparently thought that the world would end with about, within about a century of his life. Likewise, the Puritans thought the millennium ended in 1300, and so they expected the world to end about a century after their existence. And a healthy pocket of Americans during the Revolutionary War thought it was the final war and that King George III was the Antichrist. And I find it ironic that a couple hundred years later, we so often project that persona of the Antichrist on our own presidents, right? Trump hasn't even been set in yet, and I saw one on my timeline. Every single president since I've been in high school, you see one video on him saying, oh, they're the Antichrist. This is the beginning of the end. I say all that to say that when I'm asked by people, and trust me, when you're a youth pastor and you hang out with high school boys in a life group for an hour, it either goes to dinosaurs and creation or it goes to Revelation. How's it all going to end, right? And when they ask me that or somebody asks me, hey, how's it all going to play out? What's all this in Revelation mean? What does Revelation 12 mean? What does this chapter mean? I pause because a lot of people have given their personal take and many of them have been wrong. The primary message in Revelation is Jesus. Jesus triumphant. Jesus enthroned. Jesus returning for his bride. As much as we tried, Jesus told us himself not to try to figure out when he was going to come back. In Mark 13, 32, he says, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. But somehow we've missed the point. We've published thousands of books on the subject. And as consequences, one, we've killed a lot of trees unnecessarily with these books that nobody's touching anymore. But two, it develops this crisis approach to the return of Jesus and when he's coming back. We binge when it seems evident, and then we fade back when it falls back again. Think about Y2K. People were challenged to act. People stockpiled their homes, but by the second week of January, by about the second month of the year, it was back to normal. They were trying to pawn off all the water and all the food. And in the same way, the promise of Christ's return, that should demand action in our lives. But trying to dial in the win of when he comes back, it, it Again, it causes us to adopt this right mindset only in times when it seems like there's a crisis or it seems like he might be coming back, and then we dial it back again. You know, it wasn't long after Y2K that 9-11 that happened. And the day after 9-11 on 9-12, on people were flocking to churches. I remember real world on MTV, the whole cast just paused to pray. 
People sought God because they didn't know what was happening or what was going to happen. But it wasn't long thereafter in the weeks and months after that it began to feel like 9-10 again. People just reverted right back. So it's not a new inclination to pray only when we feel like we need something. In the book of Hosea, it says of the Israelites, when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. Sometimes we can treat God like I treated my parents who were sitting right here when I was a teenager. We go to them when we think we need something. But me, I thought I had life figured out, right? So I didn't go very often. You know, I would go to my room and listen to music and do me, but then I would realize, oh, I need my parents right now. So then I would go to ask them for something. But we shouldn't treat God in that way. You know, the purpose of Revelation wasn't to turn us all into Judgment Day junkies, but so we can, not so we can prep bunkers or cram for the final test, but so we can be faithful to God today in the mission he's given us. You know, it's powerful that Paul addresses this in 1 Thessalonians 5. There's a church he's talking to that was grappling with this idea of Jesus coming back and, and how is that going to affect the dead and the living and what's it going to look like. And Paul quickly in, in chapter 5, he dismisses the wind. He says it's going to be like labor coming on a pregnant woman or it's going to be like a thief and it's going to come quickly. He says that in a couple sentences and then the rest of the chapter is him digging into the how should we live until then. His emphasis isn't on the speculation on the final days, but how should we live until he comes? Because the wind is always going to be obscure. Jesus all but promised that. But the how we should live until then should be dialed in, should be locked in. And when we try to dial in when Christ is going to come back, we, we so often it blinds us to the fact that we're supposed to be living faithful on the mission he's given us, the great commission today. The mission he's given the church tonight, tomorrow, in 2017. You know, this focus in crunch time is what some would call uh, the clutch. Excuse me, that was a magazine the, <laughs> right before the year 2000. I don't know why Jesus would be standing with a, uh, ambiguous questions on a placard in Times Square. But again, this idea of executing in the crunch time, it's what some people would call being clutch. So what, what marks a clutch person is the ability to consistently perform well in a critical moment when a lot is on the line. And somebody we often see with the, the adjective clutch is athletes. How many of you guys can think of a clutch athlete? I gave you a freebie on the screen. But Wayne, Tom Brady, yup. <laughs> From a Jets fan, he knows, right? <laughs> Novell, you raise your hand. Usain Bolt, yep. When the stakes were high, he did his best. Michael Jordan, yeah. When I think of clutch, I was, again, in high school when that happened, I believe, somewhere around there. The little push off of Brian Russell and then sinking the basket. Nate, big poppy, Ortiz of the Boston Red Sox, for those who <laughs> don't know who he's talking about. <laughs> Reggie Miller in general was clutch. All you got to do is ask Spike Lee, right? Adam Vinatieri, Nate of the Patriots, hitting field goals left and right in crunch time, winning Super Bowls. Joe Montana's nickname was Joe Cool. He led some 40-plus fourth-quarter comebacks, many in the Super Bowl. These guys were clutch. And, again, what marks a clutch person or a clutch athlete is their ability to consistently perform in a critical moment when a lot is on the line. When it's the state championship and there's seconds left and you're down by one and you have two free throws. Or when you, come on, practically, you show up at work and your, your coworker has prepared a presentation, but they called in sick and the boss tags you to give the presentation and you only got about an hour to get familiar with the, the material. Do you step up or do you crumble? In the movies, when somebody finds a bomb and they've got 60 seconds to defuse it, that is crunch time, that's clutch. Do they step up or do they crumble? It's the 
the idea of being clutch. And when Jesus comes back, again, we don't know. We aren't supposed to know, but we are supposed to live as if we're in the critical moment right before it, right prior to it. But, you know, when it comes to being clutch, a lot of people will say, well, either you have it or you don't. You're either born with this clutch gene or you don't. But psychiatrists have proven, no, you can develop this ability to be clutch. And it's similar to the way that many people think that a high purpose and a high calling, it's only for called folks. And then the rest of us sit idly by. But come on, we're all called to a purpose by God in these potentially final days. And you can, again, develop and train yourself to execute in clutch moments. And I'm called to be clutch. You're called to be clutch. The church is called to be clutch today in 20, almost 2017. And like the wise men, again, who lived in light of the prophecies of Jesus' coming, whose belief sparked action, we're called to live in light of his coming again. And there's two truths in Jesus' coming again that we see in Revelation, we see in Scripture and they're to inform how we live in these, again, potentially end times. In what we should consider as critical moments when we're called to execute as the church and as believers. And the first is a promise. It's the promise of Christ's return. You know, Y2K was a maybe, and it never happened. But Christ's return is promised, and it's, it's going to happen. He's coming again, and there will be justice Judgment and salvation. As it says in Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. No longer will there be a curse on anything, as it goes on to say in chapter 22. The bottom line is God wins. God's people win. But what cripples people in the clutch in sports and in life, so many psychiatrists will tell you, is the fear of failure. The thought of what will happen if I don't execute? What will happen if I don't make the basket or miss or, or fail miserably? What will happen if I don't come through? What will people think of me? What will happen to my career? My coach used to tell me when I played basketball and we would practice day in and day out, and we just be like, what is, why? Why more? Why more? He said, winners win in advance. And you mentally play out in advance to practice and imagine yourself being successful. Even as you practice, you play to win, but then you practice to win. You even imagine to win. But here's the thing. Spiritually, we don't have to practice winning in our head because Jesus already did. Jesus won at the cross. You know, but in light of that, Ephesians 6 gives us this reminder that every day we wake up, there's a battle to fight spiritually. And Revelation almost serves as like this extended commentary on Ephesians 6 that there is a battle that we as the church are a part of. There will be significant battles we fight in this life for our marriages, for our kids, for relationships, battles we might fight on our knees, (laughs) battles we fight for the church, battles we fight that God's called us to fight. And tapping out or sitting back and not fighting, it'll result in loss. And even when we do fight in a broken world, there will be suffering. We may suffer losses, but how many of you guys have heard the phrase, you can win the battle but lose the war? I don't know if that's in marriage counseling, but it should be. I'm going to work that into mine, right? Because when you're having an argument, you can win that battle and then lose the war and be sleeping on the couch that night. But here's the thing. Spiritually, it works backwards. We don't know what might happen with the battle, but we know that the war has been won. The biggest victory, the one for our hope and for our eternal salvation, it's already been won at the cross. So whatever happens in this life, whatever losses we suffer here and now, 
our eternity is secure. In that, we live with a promise of justice, that wrongs will be made right. And in that, we live with a promise of healing, that there will be a time where there will be no more death and no more sorrow. And here's why I'm speaking on this. And here's how this promise, it should inform our life. One way that it should change our perspective and how we live in the years to come is it should unleash us to live missionally, to show grace, to love people, to love even our enemies. You know, it says in Romans 12, it's not Jesus, it's Paul, speaking to the persecuted church in Rome. In Romans 12, verses 9 through 10, it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Goes on to say, do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. You know, this kind of teaching is unnatural in a tit-for-tat, dog-eat-dog culture. When Jesus said to the Israelites, love your enemy, that was pretty head-scratching when the Romans were slaughtering and crucifying Jews left and right. Made no sense if this life we live here is the only life we're going to experience. But come on, Jesus speaks to an eternity in heaven that flips everything here on its head, that when Jesus returns, there's going to be justice and there's going to be healing. You know what marks us as people of grace and of love and of compassion in this life, how many of you guys know it's not because everybody's kind to us? <laughs> it's not because everything always works out. You know, Paul in his letter is talking to people in a church that were suffering violence and persecution and brutalization. And how do they not respond in kind with an eye for an eye? Because they leave room for the wrath of God, the justice promised in Jesus' return and his judgment. You know, God's justice is good news for us because in light of that, we can forgive knowing that he's going to deal with it. We can give grace. We can, as Jesus called us to, love our enemy. Knowing that evil will be judged, we can walk towards the demand of Romans 12 and overcome evil with good. And, man, it's crazy and it's crazy powerful that Steph shared what she did during worship about just dealing with, with hurts that have been done to you, maybe unforgiveness. Because I was just even praying today, and I felt that tonight I, I wanted to say this is good news. That God's judgment and his healing is going to come. Because maybe 2016 has been a year of pain. Maybe because of what people did to you, but maybe because of what you did to yourself. Sometimes we can struggle to forgive ourselves. But maybe there's this cloud of unforgiveness that's been following you, and it reminds you again and again of the offense. It reminds you again and again of the pain. reminds you again and again of the hurt. But because justice and healing is in God's hands, come on, we can open our hands tonight and lay that down. You know, I heard somebody say before, unforgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting it to hurt the other person. Come on, it's so powerful when we can let go of the hurt. We can let go of the bitterness. We can let go of the deep-rooted pain that maybe somebody caused us, not because they've done anything good, but because Jesus did something good on the cross, and he's going to come back with justice and healing. So come on, tonight, I just want to pray as Steph did during worship. God, if those people are here tonight, and I believe they're here tonight, Lord God, that, that need to deal with unforgiveness and bitterness, Lord God, I pray that tonight, God, we will be reminded that when Jesus said on the cross, God, forgive them, that looks foolish. But on Sunday, it looked darn near supernatural, God. And so often when we forgive in the moment, it seems counterintuitive, but, but in the weeks and years to come, it's supernatural, the, the healing and grace we can step into. God, I pray that tonight you would bring healing to just deep places in our lives. God, we thank you that as we sang, God, there's power in the name of Jesus. We thank you that as we sang that you can work miracles. God, you bring the dead to life. You can bring dead things in us to life, and you can take those things that have hurt us and, and remove them, God. I just pray that tonight, 
God, no matter what we've walked in in 2016 or even the years prior to that, God, that we'd be able to lay down those things that you're calling us to lay down, those things that have hindered, maybe those things that have entangled. God, as you call us to run the race in 2017, God, let no unforgiveness or bitterness hold us back. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Losing my voice tonight. These mugs, if our next step card gets you one, they're a lifesaver. But that's the promise of Christ's return. It's the promise of revelation. But we also see that there's a demand to this idea that Christ is coming back. We love that Jesus gives us a grace that covers us, right? We celebrate that. We're like, yeah, give me some of that. But this grace that calls us to transform, this grace that calls us to put in the work of sanctification, then we're like, ah, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. But you see in Revelation multiple times where it'll give a vision, it'll give this symbolism, and then it'll say this calls for. And there are three different things just I want to hit on real quick. There's multiple ones in Revelation, but it calls for perseverance, calls for faithfulness, calls for a mind with wisdom. When we read the book of Revelation, when we consider that Christ is coming back, we need these things. And how many of you guys realize you read these, none of these are given to you in a moment. None of those things we're born with. You're not born with faithfulness or a mind with wisdom. Those are things you prove. Those are things you attain in life, in overcoming obstacles, in fighting battles. And if we're honest, it would be a lot more easy if we could obtain these things just chilling on the couch, binge-watching Netflix, right? But nothing in this list that's demanded will be found in our comfort zone. Christ's return calls for action on our part. Again, singing powerfully and Steph reminding us that we're called to be an army rising up. We're called to action. We're not called to just twiddle our thumbs until Jesus returns. And, And so often we can think about this and think about it as if it's demanding. Like why does God demand so much of us? Why do we have to do this great commission? And why do we have to help build his church? But it's not a demand. Come on, because the grace of God is the gift of purpose. It's the gift of purpose. I just went on vacation. It's like the reverse creation narrative. I was resting for six days, and by the seventh day, I was ready to get back to work. Praying for you guys, thinking of your faces, thinking of the the calling God's given us in this region. And I can't do from Florida. I've got to get back home, right? Go to service, we preach to you, and do life with you. It's the gift of purpose. Pray for somebody like Mike Blevins, who's back on on winter break. I remember in college, I used to get about five or six weeks off. Come on, after about week four, I'm like, man, I need to get back to school and and go get my degree. And because I, I was dead bored by the end. After college, I graduated in 2006 on Mother's Day. Didn't get my first job until November. So there was a little window in there. Let me tell you, the first day I woke up and there was nothing to do and I could just relax. It was awesome. Fortieth day, three four months in miserable, right? I was ready for the work and the calling that God was going to call me to step into. How many of you guys know that, that work, he gave work to Adam in Eden before the fall? Come on, having a purpose is a gift from God. And it's common among athletes, soldiers alike, these people that have to deliver in clutch moments and under pressure that when they come back or when they're done, there's what they call an adrenaline crash. In 2015, so just last year in the offseason, come on, Tom Brady, Wayne's example for a clutch athlete, he jumped off a cliff in Costa Rica, had his wife film it. And as you watch the video, he's jumping off and he just falls like into the abyss and into the water and people freaked out. Right? I know Nate remembers it because Patriots Nation lost their collective minds. <laughs> their video had some 20,000 comments, many from fans who had a heart attack watching it. Like that's foolish levels of risk, so many of them said. 
But we look back on that and laugh, but there's other athletes, clutch athletes who delivered in the clutch, who, who you think of Tiger Woods, O.J. Simpson, where their off-the-field foolishness was serious issues and problems. The problem that many athletes and other clutch performers have is that without the high-stakes situation, all that adrenaline that gets built up, the resulting rush that they have in those clutch moments, they don't have that moment, so they have to make them step into uh, moments that are dangerous, maybe forbidden or risky and even foolish that will trigger that outpouring of adrenaline and the resulting high. I share all that because how many believers Come on, step into forbidden and foolish things because they aren't actively pursuing the purpose God has given them. Who, they've checked out of their purpose in this critical time that God's given us. You know, there's the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. How many of you have heard that? How many of your mother or father said that to you, right? (laughs) You know, I want to pause because there's a difference between idleness and resting, right? The Bible, Proverbs says a whole lot of things about people who are idle and they're not nice things. But yet the Bible champions again and again rest. You know, idleness is simply unplugging and doing nothing. But rest is not just unplugging, it's plugging into God. Unplugging from pursuit so that we can make sure we're in step with God. That's active rest. But Jesus hits on idleness in Matthew 20, verses 6 through 7. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And it says that uh, he went out and found others standing around and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they answered him, because no one has hired us. He told them, you go into the vineyard also. So in this parable, he's been giving people the gift of work, the gift of a job, the gift of purpose. And he's been doing it throughout the day. And this is literally in the 11th hour, it says in the Bible. This is crunch time at the end of the work day. And he hires these people who said, nobody's given us any work to do. No one's hired us. And in this parable, the landowner is God. And the vineyard represents his kingdom work. And we too aren't called to stand idly by while we wait for Jesus to return. But we're called to get busy building the church, reaching the lost, walking through all the pathways and disciplines we talk about here at City Life. You know, Matthew 9, verses 37 through 38 says that Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what do we pray for? He says, pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. I love that that prayer is something that we can both pray and participate in, be the answer to. And maybe these parables and analogies, they don't come quickly to us these days because we don't live in an agricultural society. We're not out working fields. So maybe we think that that we don't know the ins and outs. You know, many of you, you may feel like you don't know the ins and outs of evangelism. You don't know the ins and outs of sharing the gospel. You don't know the ins and outs of salvation and sanctification and justification and propitiation and all these different things. And, And nonetheless... God has covered you in grace, but he's also called you. He's called you to step out. He's called you. Again, the fact that Christ is coming back, it should demand action on our part. That he's given us purpose in this critical time. And what cripples many in the church, what cripples many in the clutch, is, again, this idea of of paralysis by analysis. Paralysis by analysis is overanalyzing a situation so that an action is never taken. In effect, paralyzing the outcome. How often do we do this with the Great Commission? The call is pretty simple. Share the hope we have. Teach people to obey Jesus' teachings. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. But we so often complicate that with our doubts and our fears, and it paralyzes us. But I love that revelation. 
just to bring it full circle. It simplifies our call to the world in one word. And, and the word is come. Revelations 22:17. it says, The spirit and the bride say come. And let him who hears say come. We simply extend the invitation we've received, again, by the spirit. We extend the invitation to come to Jesus to experience his grace and be transformed by his truth. The purpose of the Bible is not just to inform us, it's to transform us. The purpose of prophecy in scripture is not just to inform us, it's to transform us. And I've been preparing this sermon, I've been praying for you guys this week as I've been in Florida, just praying that this year it wouldn't just be about information, but it would be about transformation. The things we know, the things we've learned, maybe some of you guys have been going to church your whole life, maybe you've been going for like two months, but the information, the things we know from scripture, that it would begin to transform us, begin to spark action. Come on, mate, God's word begin to stir and move you to action and transform you in 2017. May you walk in the promise of his return with healing and justice coming that will unleash you to love people. May you walk with the gift of purpose, working in those fields, living missionally, reaching people. We're going to close with worship. We're going to close with uh, break every chain. There's power in the name of Jesus. Took me a second. But we're going to do that because Revelation, again, 19.10, it says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John, in the moment, is freaking out. He's bowing down. The, worship, the angel says, hey, worship, worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But then it says just verses later. It's in Revelation 22.20. It says, He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And the reply of his bride and the reply of his church is, amen, come Lord Jesus. The question I want to pose to you tonight is that in response to the unveiling of who Jesus is and what he's coming to do, can you say with anticipation, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Because sometimes there's anticipation, but sometimes there's apprehension. And so often in my life when I'm working through things, I'm making decisions, I'm pursuing God, I want to make sure that I can say, man, if Jesus came back tonight or I knew he was coming back, I would be excited. I would be filled with joy to stand in his presence. There wouldn't be any apprehension because something's been hindering me or holding me back. So as we just step into worship in this moment, I want to encourage you, if there's anything in your life that when you think, hey, Jesus is coming back, it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, it could be years from now. But that causes apprehension in your heart because you think, man, there's this thing that I haven't dealt with. There's this thing that in his presence I'd be ashamed of. Guess what? You don't have to carry that into 2017. You can leave that here tonight. So we're going to sing that there's power in the name of Jesus. But if there's something you need to lay down, be freed from, come on, the altar's open. I'm going to be here to pray. If you need prayer for anything, grab me. But there is power in the name of Jesus. And if the reason you're apprehensive about the second coming of Christ is you've never made him Lord of your life. You've never said, Jesus, I want you to not just be enthroned in heaven. I want you to be enthroned in my heart. <laughs> I want your commands and your grace to cover me and call me. And come on, let that night be tonight where you can lay that apprehension down and pick up the anticipation of not just Jesus and a relationship with him to come, but Jesus and a relationship with him today. Well, come on, let's worship. The, Bible, prophecy, all of it points to Jesus. May our lives in 2017 point to Jesus because there's power in the name of Jesus. It breaks every chain. So let's sing that together. And again, if you need prayer for anything, the altar's open. I'll be right here, but let's sing.
was past.